Today's podcast is sponsored by 360 Works, your FileMaker plugin development partner. They have a complete portfolio of FileMaker plugins at 360works.com. And if you don't see what you need, they'll build it. Partner with 360 Works to extend the power of FileMaker in directions you never imagined. Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. And I'm Matt Petrowski. And with us we have John Sindler. Oh, yeah. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah. So John's sitting here in Portland with me. And I'm all alone by myself in California. In a small room. And you're, you're in your padded cell today? Or are you in? With no light. They <laughs> give me one little lamp. He's on the payphone in county. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, still uh, hacking out FileMaker. <laughs> so our topic today is going to be conventions. And not like, you know, conventions like Dragon Con and, uh, you know, the DevCon. But instead, we're going to be talking about naming conventions for scripts, fields, things like that. I'm conventionally deprived of FileMaker conventions for naming. Nice. <laughs> keep, keep thinking up those stupid convention jokes. Hey, I had to do something stupid, so we had to replace the uh, We're Met Squared. <laughs> okay, I skimmed the news, and here's just a few of the things that I found that were interesting. Of course, I can't cover all of them. Go to fmpro.org if you want to look at the news. They've got some developer cards. These are basically like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this. There's these cards from this company called Visibone. That uh, Funny name, yeah, I know. That they've put them out for the web developer community for a long time, but somebody's doing them for FileMaker. Uh, Steve Wilms Consulting. I thought that was pretty interesting. So they're basically just those hard, uh, hard cardstock laminated cards that make, uh, make reference really easy. I don't know how that compares to the uh, ones that they have over from FM Pug, but was a little bit interesting. Here's another one. Uh, John might actually know a little bit about this. NinjaCal dates just got easier. The proof group and seed code announced a uh, little NinjaCal. So what's that about, John? I thought this was like weeks ago. That's how much time I've been spending on this. It's been people have been uh, pretty excited about it. It's a little mini calendar that you drop on. It's kind of like FileMaker's date picker, but it's persistent on the layout and shows you know one to three months, and has code in there to let you use the selected dates to filter portals and do searches, date range searches. It's pretty cool. The guys at Proof so where, did a great job on it. Where do people go? Proof or Seed Code? Proof or Seed Code? I think uh, I think it's up at Seed Code right now, but the guys at Proof are working to get their page up pretty soon. Very cool. So their site is proofgroup.com or theproofgroup.com? Which is it? It's proofgroup.com. I knew it was one of those. There's also a news story here about a ISO FileMaker magazine. Who, who runs that, John? Some guy. Some guy. Some guy in <laughs> county. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> gets, uh, gets an interface overhaul because, you know, when you're in county, you've got nothing but time. I've seen this interface thing. It's amazing. And the fact that, that Matt did this for himself just so he could work with it is, is pretty, pretty hilarious. And shows you what well, a premium he places on good UI. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to be mean, but I always use this saying that if I have the choice to, between driving a Pinto and driving a Porsche, I'd rather drive a Porsche. And so that's sort of what drove me. Not to say that the previous interface was a Pinto, but... Yeah, but it was. And for those listening who don't <laughs> know what it was about, I basically took the sample file that 360 Works includes with the Script Master plugin. And I just sort of gave it a little bit of an interface overhaul and then turned it into an article on the magazine site. Cool. So which but would you... last news wh- item. Which would you rather take to the service shop, though, the Pinto or the Porsche? Uh, is, well, if I've got the money, profound. the Porsche. 
Depends on the uh, type of service, I guess. Yeah. FM snippets for text expander. Do you guys use that? Don't text but should. expander. It's basically just a little uh, extension that goes into your preferences pane, and you can type a shortcut for something, and then it will expand out. Well, uh, Camp Software had released a little snippets file of uh, common uh, FileMaker functions. So I guess, like, you know, substitute, you could put in S-U-B-T, or, mm-hmm. you know, something that's not part of a word, like sub-whatever. So you type in S-U-B-T, and it would expand out the full FileMaker function of substitute for you. Tom Fitch, who I worked with at Pre-1, and who's now at Fiddlehead Software, he loves those things. They, I, he, they make his life a lot easier, but I never really got into it. He couldn't sell you I on use it? them. No, I don't know. I just but... There are some of them that I really get annoyed typing all the time. Like, for example... I spelled parameter wrong, you know, just for laziness for a long time. So I always just, the first line of every script is set a variable called dollar $param to get script parameter. So I'm not typing a script, get script parameter a bunch of times. But uh, I don't know. And actually, I think there's other good reasons for doing it that way. But there's other functions that take a lot longer to type their full name. Calculation repetition number. I misspell that all the time. Yeah. I just don't about, use the uh, ones I can't spell. Get layout object attribute. Now that's a wonderful function yeah. name. Yeah. Plus, <laughs> plus it can actually you can type in you know a, some short code for that, and then it can actually have all the arguments in there. But get layout object attribute, like what you'd use very commonly for a web viewer. How many times are you actually really typing that in any given solution? You know, I usually use one layout as the web viewer for any given context for everything. So I don't use that one very much. I've used it a few times, but it makes sense just to use one as a utility layout. So, I don't know. That thing definitely saves time if you have a lot of uh, a lot of typing to get the uh, function names. I think it's probably good. What else is there for news? Um, well, I skimmed through them, and that was, those were the things that pretty much uh, jumped out at me. There's, you know, capture custom functions free... Uh, drooling dog for hosting your solution, FM gateway hosting, a lot of just standard promo stuff. FM, my FM Butler releases updates to Clip Manager, their Do SQL plugin, all kinds of stuff. Excelsis had a drop, uh, drag and drop dead elegant interfaces, tips and tricks. So they've got some content over there at Excelsis.com. But other than that, that's uh, those are pretty much the uh, top ones that I saw that drew my attention. Cool, so it's not FileMaker. The three of us are going to share two things. Streaks, streaks free, is that what it's called? Stre- streaks free, yeah. The, Matt, uh, Matt Petrosky actually turned me on to this, and uh, it's a really simple app for your iPhone. All you do is it brings up a 30-day calendar, and you put a little X on every day where you complete whatever task you've assigned yourself. So I'm trying to work on this particular project, and if I work on it every day, I get a little X, and it tells you how many days in a row you've kept your streak going. So once you've been doing it for a while, you're kind of motivated to keep that streak going instead of taking a day off. And uh, I'm actually embarrassed to say how motivating I find it because I like all my little red X's on yeah. my calendar. I'm going to put wake <laughs> up as the task on mine every day. <laughs> right on. <laughs> and until, until the day I die, I'll get to check that X, man. <laughs> oh. I've had a few long streaks now. I don't know, Matt, if you've run into this, but uh, if you if you – Get some long ones. It starts commenting that you're like, you know, spending too much time at work and like need to spend more time with your family. It's kind of cool. That's oh, cool. Oh, it should be telling you you're awesome. 
You're awesome. You're more awesome than you knew you were awesome. You're awesomer. <laughs> I haven't enabled the awesomeness setting yet. Awesomestus. I remember a bunch of years ago when I was really into the Franklin Day Planner, how they sort of emphasized that checking off the checkbox on all the items that you got to complete that day was a really good positive reinforcement. And having to rewrite on the next day's task list all the things that you didn't do was like the little subtle negative reinforcement. That's interesting. I tried it. It didn't work for me. Yeah. Most uh, most commonly requested feature in our calendar, which is now part of it, obviously, is moving all the appointments from one day to the next day. <laughs> <laughs> so is People that a free application? I guess things. it's free because it's called Streaks Fee. Is there a charged version? Yeah, there's a pro version that lets you create more than one target. So with the free version, you just get one calendar and you have your streak running. And in the pro version, you could have a bunch of different streaks with dumbass things like wake up and then cool things like you know doing your work so you can have more than one task was that a dig there was no slight there to <laughs> was a you little dig. <laughs> i should i should pay closer attention <sighs> so let's see the uh, the other thing that we got is a mac os 10 application it might is it also a windows application called slife as in slice of life i don't know they may all i downloaded was the mac <laughs> that was all. That's all I was interested in. Because we're all Mac users, the three of us, and that's it. We do happen slifelabs dot com. S l i f e l a b s dot com. It's a cool little this program that watches awesome. everything that you do as you work, watches which documents are open, what applications you're doing, and tracks how much time you're spending in FileMaker versus on, say, Facebook. So and, you downloaded it? Yeah, I downloaded it, installed it on uh, several of my computers. And, and have you looked at like your stats at like? Where you spend most of your time? Yeah, I have. I've only been using and? it for maybe a week or so, and so f- and so I've been knowing that it's tracking me. I've only been using FileMaker, so it, so I'm uh, making it look like I. <laughs> so it looks like you're doing work. <laughs> so I just do all my web surfing inside of a FileMaker web viewer, so it looks like I'm programming. <laughs> actually, saw on Facebook. <laughs> That's actually a good idea. That is not bad. <laughs> Well, they've got these. They've got these settings. They, first, it tracks your applications. It tracks the documents that you use in those applications, and then it tracks the total time that you've been actually doing something on the computer because it monitors your idle time. So, one of the cool things that I like is once you get a month's worth of data, you can actually see literally how many total hours you have spent on the computer with your mouse moving and not actually being idle. And you can say either, whoa, I've spent way too much time, or, hey, this is cool, I'm really not spending that much time on the computer. And then when you look at the email, you're like, oh, cool, I'm either spending way too much time doing email or not doing email. So it can adjust your behavior in terms of how you approach certain things that you do throughout the course of time. So has anything you saw in there surprised you? Um, for myself personally, um, like this month, my top two applications are Firefox and FileMaker Pro Advanced. And then if I go to look at uh, my documents, well, so far today, Matt Navarre's got 13 minutes and 34 seconds of my uh, chat time <laughs> consumed. <laughs> but it's, it also does categories, so you can create activities. Thanks for, they call them thanks for telling activities. me about that, by the way, because I'm going to send you a bill for those 13 minutes. <laughs> well, that's it's perfect for billing because these activities, if you set up an activity for each of the different clients, if, you're, if you will take the time to do it, they're up in the um, menu bar, you can simply select from the activity and you can choose more than one activity. Uh, so if it spans across 
multiple activities, it will track the exact amount of time you spend on each one of those activities. You just create an activity for each client or each project or whatever it is that you want to track. Cool. There's one thing that I wish it did, and I don't know if it doesn't have it, and that is the ability to consolidate data from multiple computers so that you can work on, because I have three Macs I work on, a small notebook, a desktop computer at home, and then a computer at work. Uh, and it would be really cool if I could consolidate the data from all of them to one place. Yeah, that I don't know. It, it doesn't do that. And one thing I do wish it it did for me was when, if you do use activities, if you select on an activity, say, for example, you're doing well, one of the things I have to do is um, occasionally I have to do some support email. So I will go in, I'll set it to I'm spending some time on support. I'll forget. And then, you know, three hours down the road, I'm like, oh, great. It still tracked my time as doing support. I wish it would detect not only when you're idle, which it does do, but when it's idle, automatically turn off all categories. Oh, yeah. So you have to uh, remember that you have a category or activity turned on and actually turn it off. Otherwise, your time will be all jacked up. I see there also is a Windows version. Is there a Pro version that costs money? Uh, as far as I know, they're in beta right now, and they're just, you know, they want to get people using it. Hmm. Okay, which cool. Which is the, what everybody else is in. Uh, I found one. Beta. I found one bug with it. When I go to the Citrix login page for State of Oregon, the application crashes, which is you know some weird little thing. So I just relaunch it. It doesn't seem to have lost anything. It just doesn't seem to like the Citrix login page. Bad Citrix. I don't know if it's a. Uh, I think it's using a certificate for security. That might be it. Let's get on to our topic. All right. So there's kind of four questions I wanted to discuss. What is the value of conventions? What areas do you use them? I'll just throw out all the questions and then we'll, you know. What is the main thing that you're trying to achieve when you use them? And have you changed which conventions you adhere to or invent over time? So you're going to have to ask those in order because I, you just lost me at the third question. <laughs> so what, what is the value of a naming convention in FileMaker that you use? Comprehension? Yeah, I'm answering as if it's a multiple question and I'm losing <laughs> or I'm guessing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in a firm, you know, one develops a naming convention so the developers can pick up where another developer left off without having to spend too much time, you know, following the rabbit holes to figure out what's going on. And as an, as an individual, you write uh, documentation and use naming conventions for your future forgetful self. So when you come back to something, you can recognize it without too much poking around. The FFS Future forgetful self? Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to wrap that up into one word. Clarity. <laughs> clarity. Yeah. We all want clarity. Consistency is another big one, I think, that, that fall into for conventions. Yeah. I mean, you know you're happy when you can just type calcs instead of picking fields and variables and other things or having to look them up. When you just know in your head what something should be named, you're in the zone then and you're feeling really good and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're getting more work done. So let's say there's several different areas that you've got naming conventions in FileMaker. Obviously, you've got field names, you've got script names, layout names, variables, variable names, global and local, table occurrence names, right? The graph, and then the relationships on the graph. So, you know, not only each table occurrence itself, but also has a if you're using anchor buoy, uh, how they go off to the right. You know how they. Other relationships name, and then if you've got a key field or a sort or some other or a create or delete in a relationship, whether you denote that in the name. Oh yeah, good point. I don't do that. Do you do that? No, I like to. Well, generally, 
And I guess to kind of go to the, thre- the question number three, what's the main thing you're trying to achieve? So that kind of is related to the why, what's the value? But to me, what I'm trying to achieve mostly is simplicity. So I don't, like in field names, I don't use special characters and, and crazy stuff when I name fields. Like some people have something like Z underscore date underscore created for the creation date. I just have a field called created. Oh, come on. You can get weirder than that. I think even FileMaker's uh, white paper says that, you know, you can have a single letter for whether it's text, then another single letter for whether it's global, mm-hmm. then another. So you get kind of like Z underscore name TG dot confusion or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, um, <laughs> okay, everyone, raise your hands if you would adhere fully to the FileMaker 80-page naming convention. Whoa, well, no I don't hands. see one of us holding our hands up. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> not that it, you know, I'm not, not that using it's a, a terribly bad thing or anything, but it is. It's it seems more arcane than. I didn't see any listeners holding their hand up. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> Out of the three, right? Yeah, I'd love to know. I'm going to stop apologizing for it then. Um, I, you know, actually, the thing about that document is there's. I don't know if it was really ever to be intended to be something that you'd look at and follow the entire thing, but you kind of pick parts of it that are useful and concepts of it that are useful, and. The whole idea that naming conventions are important and that some standardization across multiple databases would be a good thing, I think, is the main thing. Well, but really, it's an evolving areas. Uh, topic. Let's go through the areas. Let's give, let's give the listeners something to chew on. Let's start with fields. What are conventions that you have used, either that you're not using now or that, uh, you know, something you find value? Like uh, John and I were talking about namespacing. Namespacing may not be something that uh, a lot of FileMaker developers understand, or, or I should say fewer understand. That's basically just starting from your general and then going down to your specific. So you have the options of, within a field list, you can prefix that field name with the name of the table. You could also prefix it with its general type, like address, and then you have address city, address line one, address line two, etc., and then go all the way down to simple. Whereas what you mentioned that you're using, Matt, is just straight simple. City, state, zip. Yep, pretty much. From my basic data fields, I give them very, very simple names. Uh, depending upon the solution, I may or may not have spaces in the names. I generally don't use underscores. And then I, I, I apply, and I always sort them in custom order, in logistical order, with the fields that I care about at the top of the list. So all Explain my data fields logistical. are stored. Sorry? What do, you, what do you mean by logistical order? Well, I have a field called address, city, state, and zip, just named like that. And I, I have them in that order based on where the address block is on the main layout that the address is edited. Okay, so you're talking about use order with regards yeah, to relevance. Much. Logical order. Yeah, yeah, my primary key is always at the top, and the foreign keys are always right below that, and then I've got my main data fields. Did this evolve from something more complicated in the past? Mm, no, I think that's just the way I've done it. I don't know. I guess it might have, but I've 21 years of FileMaker, hard to remember. Um, and then if I've got other types of fields like calculations and summaries and globals, I use a single letter, C, or a lowercase letter, to tell me if it's a calculation, summary, or a global. And you do that at the front, right? Right, at the first letter of the thing. Yeah. Now, I, see, here's where we get into that, that area where this is – I draw – a distinct on fields in particular i draw a distinction that there are two types there is data and non data all non data fields they can either you know deal with functionality utility 
interface, everything else that is business logic not tied to the storage of the data. And you guys were making fun of me. Yeah, because you actually use non-data fields in a FileMaker database. (laughs) What an amateur. (laughs) Okay, Mr. Cutlow. You You know that we're using FileMaker. You have to use in at least some minimal situations, you have to use some fields in order to achieve the cool functionality that you want to achieve by using fields for non-data. Come on, Matt. I thought if you were still putting fields on a layout, that's just old school, man. I mean, now that we have web viewers, I don't, I don't know what all these fields are doing there. Yeah, so actually, it, it, it is modern things like web viewers that are helping you not have to waste resources. Fields are expensive. So, does, does, you know, so what are you talking about when you say web viewers let you not waste fields? Well, you can do things like show the current the count of you know what record you're on out of how many records in the found set, you used to have to make a calculated field for that. Now you don't. Right. So you can just use the web viewer to kind of write little data URLs that are kind of like calcs on the layout. They just happen to be so wrapped in little web viewers. Yeah, you're buying you, into this, huh, Matt? Let's say you have a field that stores whether a record is marked for deletion or not. And if it's set, you want to have a big red delete appear on the screen. Well, before, you used to have to make a calculated field for that. Now you can actually have a conditionally formatted text object on the layout that makes the font size gigantic if the delete field is not turned on. I know there's a lot of negation there, but... No, it's fun. And this has been a fun <laughs> FileMaker trick for years to try and come up with ways to display stuff on the layout without creating a field. We used to take the, you know, the number one for something being active and apply number formatting so that it gets like a bullet or an asterisk mm-hmm, and now mm-hmm. it all gets colored and... Now, with conditional formatting in web viewers, we have a lot more options, although that, that border on the web viewer in Windows just you know, drives me crazy. It is crazy. So, and then other things that we always used to have to have fields for, like globals, you can now put all those into a table of globals where there are no stored fields in there, just globals. And that drives your interface and your heads-up display and you know, your main menu and, and reporting and stuff like that. And then Except if you've the got a reporting occasion. table that has a bunch of information for, re- for an aging report or things like that, those can actually be a shadow table that's a second copy of the table that's flattened and has all the calculated fields and summary fields in it so that they're not polluting your main data table. Yeah, so this is, you know, this is interesting because I think we do have this distinction between the fields that are data and the fields that are utility or interface or keys or you know, modification tracking or audit logging, whatever those other things are, and you know, we're all naming them differently. So, Matt, uh, what's the prefix you use to determine whether to set off whether something's a data field or a non-data field? <laughs> Leading question number one. Since we're on that topic. <laughs> Bachelor number well, I one. Was, I was using – you guys were making fun of me because I was using the at sign. But I'm not – I wasn't fixed to the at sign. So, basically, my naming convention was a – I think of it in terms of a simple naming convention – all keys are prefixed with an underscore, which, when sorted alphabetically, puts them up at the top. I do like that. Then, there is a distinction between data and non-data fields. What I, I can, anything that's non-data field, I considered that a UI field. So I was prefixing that with the at symbol. An at symbol and then an underscore. The underscore, for the purpose of creating a space between the at symbol and the actual name of the field. And what that did is when you sorted alphabetically, and I know that, Matt Ann, you like to sort always in custom order, but I sort of like to, when I'm naming things, bend my conventions to fit the way that FileMaker works. So if it's easy just to click on the sort by alphabetical or sort by name, 
it would then put all keys, which are, which are prefixed with the underscore. Then it would put all UI fields and logic fields all prefixed with the at symbol. And then underneath all of those would be all uh, data fields. The whole purpose being, when you open and see that table, immediately you know what's a data field and what's not. Yeah. And you know what's a key field. And I certainly like the concept of that. Uh, personally, I would kind of prefer it if all the data fields were on top and not on the bottom, because I think that's the only stuff that's really important, or the stuff that's certainly the most important thing in the table. Um, and that I'm impartial on, whether they're actually at the top or the bottom, because it's not that big of me, uh, not that big of a deal for me to just use the end key yeah. to jump to the bottom of that list. I, I will say that, like, I think this is something people pretend to be a little more disinterested in than they are, and that folks can get pretty upset when something comes in that doesn't quite match their development standards. Um, I know specifically when we were sending stuff out to subcontractors, we'd get things back every once in a while with just some arcane uh, naming convention, like fields began with periods and stuff, and it, I just went through the roof. You know, <laughs> you, you, you know, you want to be able to look at your field list and just kind of get it. What's in the table? What's data? What's not? And when I can't, when I can't just get it quickly, uh, I just flip out. And that's what I thought this would actually do. I mean, if you if you look at the actual, and you guys both saw the screen. I mean, when you see the screen and you see them sorted alphabetically, once somebody has explained it to you the first time, and the first time you see the at symbol, you're like, "What the heck?" And it could be the pound sign, it could be whatever. The reason I didn't like using a letter is because it blended with all of the rest of the field names. I wanted something that was so distinctly different that visually, immediately, you know the difference between the field types. Yeah, and I, was that not the case? I'll give you that. No, it was visually distinct. But, but I don't know, the at sign kind of confused me a little bit at first. But of course, you know, everything that's... Not everything has to be intuitive immediately. You can be told something and remember it, and it becomes very useful. There's a lot of things in... FileMaker and in life like that, I think. True. So let's move on from fields. What about uh, variables? And uh, I'm interested to know what you guys do, like on uh, uh, variable naming, because I've been using a uh, an object-oriented dot method. So tell us. Uh, you should probably tell people what that means. Um, basically, like in um, in JavaScript or in other in Java in particular, everything, uh, all most all function calls are called according to those objects, and those objects have methods. So it's like uh, create new uh, field. Well, here's a good example. Like I do this for both my variables and layout objects. So any object on a layout. I name it in a object-oriented dot naming convention, which is if it's a tab pane, it's tab dot customer, tab dot invoices, tab dot whatever. If it's a web viewer, it's web viewer dot whatever it's going to provide. If it's a field, it's field dot. And what this does is it each dot down the down the road allows me to parse that out by breaking on that dot. So if I get all of the layout object names. I can filter out all of them by getting all of the fields, and then by getting all of the fields, I can uh, use a substitute, substitute that period into a return, and then pull out the second, third, and fourth level of those named objects. So I use more than just one. I only mentioned one level of, like, object name, and I use the native object name of whatever FileMaker calls it, then the dot in order to give it a name. From that point on, it can be named according to 
you know, starting from the very general going to the very specific. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, as usual, so, you've thought it out well. And if I, if I would switch to something from what I'm using now, which is not a whole lot, that would be what I would switch to. Agreed. And you do the same in variables? Correct. Yeah. In variables, if it has something to do with, um, you know, uh, if I'm creating a global search method, it would be search dot stored value. Or if it's a portal dealing with a customer, it would be, um, in, the ter- in the sense of variables, it would be uh, customers to indicate the, the main area, um, which is typically predominantly a layout. So it would be customers dot portal dot uh, selected. And there may, they may, be, may be a name in between that. So customers dot portal dot you know, uh, invoices dot selected which saves that customer selected. Now, sometimes things do get really long, but it's memorable. It seems like IBM would really approve of this method. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the nice thing about variables is that, uh, I'm not sure who introduced me to this, but, you know, when we've been working on these little um, uh, widgets with proof, things like NinjaCal, you know, we're namespacing all the variables so that when somebody pastes this into their file and they're working and then they go up into the data viewer, they can see that like, oh yeah, those three variables there, those begin with, you know, dollar dollar NinjaCal, double underscore something. So they know that came in with this little utility I got. Mm-hmm. I think that that makes sense, uh, not just for plug-in products, but for, you know, sections within your own code. So for creating, you know, you might preface it with creating or, you know, with other stuff. And that, that's been working really well for me. It totally takes advantage of the the uh, alphabetical sorting that the data viewer automatically applies too. Let's talk about um, tab panels because I have a naming convention that I use there because you often have nested ones, right? So like if you have a customer tab panel and then on that one you might have uh, several different panels for you know phone numbers and contacts and whatever. Usually what I do is on my main panel of tabs, I would just have a single word that usually is the same thing as the tab name. And then if I have a sub uh, tab on that same page, I would have customer colon person, customer colon phone, customer colon whatever. And then and then you can go several levels down and it, that way you're guaranteed unique names across a layout's tabs. What do you do for that, Matt? So let me get this straight. You're um you're just not uh, using like the only difference is you're not prefixing the filemaker name of the object within the customer tab, you then have objects or sub-tabs, and then you're putting what on those specifically? Well, if I have tabs within tabs, and sometimes right. I have you know two or three levels of tabs deep on any given tab object, sometimes hidden, and I need to use the go-to-object script step to go to a specific selected tab, then I'll use a naming convention to guarantee that the tabs are easy to get to and unique, so that I don't have some stupid accident where I have um, trying to name the same tab object twice, like options, which you might have in two different places. You might have customer phone options and customer invoice options. So you have to have them named differently. Yeah. Well, that's, that's actually one of the benefits that you get. I mean, whether you're using a period or the colon as a separator, it sounds mm-hmm. like what you're explaining sounds like what I do because your, your name actually extends out based on how many tab panes there are. So if you're on tab.customer, and then you're on tab.customer.details, and that may have multiple tab panes within that, 
So then you'd have tab.customer.details. You know, addresses. That very clearly explains that I'm on the addresses tab sub tab pane within the details tab that's on the customer's tab panel. <laughs> so what's the benefit of using the tab dot thing? Is that so that you can differentiate a tab versus a field versus a web viewer? Why do you um, do that? Th- yeah, the, well, the f- going from the general to the specific, the biggest advantage I've found is that you can, if you want to go to a specific thing, if you know you're on a, a if you use, and this is actually a good uh, topic with regards to conventions in general, if you follow consistent conventions, you can, with a high degree of reliability, build a name dynamically. So let's say I'm writing a script, and I know that that script, that script is going to need to be on or go to a specific area. Well, I can, if I know that I'm working with the customer, and I know it's a tab, I can say I can specify the tab dot customer, and I know that I want to deal with details, then I can dynamically append on, go to addresses or whatever, and I can store those values in global variables in terms of where the user is. So hopefully that makes sense. Like when the user heads to the customer's area and they select a certain tab, when they select that tab, I can save that they're on the, within the customer's layout, they're on the details tab. And then any other thing that the script is going to need to build, I can dynamically append on any of the sub-areas because I know the main areas that I'm already in. Makes sense. John, what do you do for... It just makes it easier to dynamically program. Yep. That makes sense, as per usual, as we to come you, to expect. hopefully, <laughs> to other people. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it's not obvious at first, but if you think about it and get into it, I mean, that, I, I see the value in it. What do you do, John, for naming conventions and tab objects? I am so embarrassed. I completely wing it. I jot down some kind of cryptic prefixes that describe kind of where I'm at. And whenever I need to refer to them, since I'm I'm never really building them dynamically, whenever I have to refer to them, I kind of look at the tab and see what the name is and then use it in my script. It's it's one area where I'm completely undisciplined. Ladies and gentlemen, he's not perfect. I don't believe it. (laughs) Shut up. Or maybe that is perfection. Maybe the rest of us are doing it wrong. That's that's probably more likely. Right. It's pretty obscure and pretty invisible to the client. You know, it's really a totally developer thing. I mean, for most oh, of totally the techniques, is. you know, we're using, you just have to have an object name. You know, often right, you don't right. need to know what it is. And and the times I do need to know what it is, I just yeah, I kind of click on it and find out. I mean, there, there are other areas I feel stronger about when it comes to naming conventions. I think a lot of people right. feel strongly about uh, relationship names or table occurrence names. You know, people get all up into how, you know, they should be this way or that way or cryptic or not cryptic or... That's actually a, that one for me is a difficult one because on table occurrences in particular, I've spent the time and I've I've gone the route I've gone both routes of one always using the base table name as the first word or multiple words within the table occurrence and then an underscore and then from there I've varied I've either gone with the route of uh, define it by functionality I've also gone by define it by the connecting table. So you've got base table underscore connecting table. And then I've also gone the, the other route of just name the table occurrence according to its functionality. But yeah. that one is the most difficult because you really lose, you know, understanding of what this is connected to. And I hate that you have to like 
you know, hover over the little uh, arrow to the yeah. up in the corner or double click it to find out. It's a real pain. Well, table occurrence names have one gigantic impact on the on the day-to-day use of FileMaker, and that is when you are trying to select a field on the layout that goes into a portal and you don't want to have to go to the graph to research that field, that how you name your um, your table occurrences matter a gigantic amount to make that process easier. And the other things we're talking about, it's not that big of a deal because you can kind of, you know, you can get the information in another way or you can just go look it up. But in that case, it saves you a huge amount of time because that's where you do a lot of work on that. I don't know. That's my two cents. What do you guys think? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it depends how your graph is built. If it's If all your table occurrences are connected, then the only way you Spider. know... Yeah, the only way you know which one to go for is if your naming convention is strong. To the degree that you're using you know, a strict anchor buoy and you have a very limited set of table occurrences to pick from in any one context, then you know, the naming convention can be a lot looser. If, if all of your table occurrences are connected and you have over 100 of them, you might you know, be happier washing cars or waiting tables. <laughs> Well, here's one thing. I've got one trick. That I, well, actually, a couple of tricks. Because um, you know that one of the biggest pains is, I don't know if you guys do this a whole lot, but a lot of the times I will um, either copy fields from one layout that I want to use in, in another layout, and it's not the same table occurrence. It then renames all the fields, you know, changes them to be the related fields instead of fields on the same table. When I go in to double-click the field to change it, using that type ahead and typing... Uh, you know, current to get all the way up to the top if you've got a long list. That's one beneficial thing when you're having to rename fields. But another thing that I do is I prefix... Do you guys use, like, developer tables, table occurrences that you basically end up never being connected? Sometimes, yeah. Like, that's the the first... When a field is first created and that table that first table occurrence ends up on the graph... The first, the only thing I do is I double-click to rename it, and I give it an underscore at the very beginning, and then I leave that table occurrence away. Well, and I consider that my developer table. That's my developer behind-the-scenes utility table. And I create an associated layout for that, and I title that layout dev underscore whatever the, the name of the table is. See, if you use a separation model, you can let your... your data file have all your junk for that have all your developer tables because all the tables that you have there exist really just for developer purposes they're not used in any script or anything true but i have them there just so that i can maintain and i have a layout based on every one of them just so that i can you know do work on the data at that level without having any other interface involved like mass replaces or imports or things like that well i'm totally all over the the separation model but when i don't do it having those base tables and knowing that I can always use them for the purpose of utility and by putting the underscore at the very beginning of the name puts all of them group at, grouped at the top of the list, the long list that FileMaker will present to you. Do you have another set of layouts based on those tables? Yes, on the developer-only tables? Yeah. They're dedicated developer layouts. Yeah, I think that's, good. that's a good practice. It's actually getting the same exact benefits of using the separation model by having a whole separate parallel set of uh, table occurrence names and layouts that are not used for any of the other coding, right? I wouldn't nope. say it's the same benefits at all. Well, similar. So it solves some of the same problems. Some of the same problems. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this would be a good point to interject something for people who maybe you know not quite at this uh, you know at Matt's level of, of FileMaker. You know, if you are pat- sending your FileMaker database to someone else to get their help, 
or hiring a firm, and you have table occurrences that have the word copy in them or two because you've like, duplicated <laughs> them, you will be charged more <laughs> by anyone who looks at that because they will just assume that all hell has fallen, up, fallen out of your file. So just take a moment, rename all those table occurrences before you send the file to anybody else. It's worth it. If you have a graph and any of the lines cross in any of your relationships... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Matt Classic. won't work on your file. <laughs> oh, but you know I'm what? That's a good point. That is a good point. The um, When you're connecting your graph and depending on the sort order of your fields, you guys have to have experienced this one. Say they're all sorted alphabetically. You go into the graph. You make all of your connections with your table occurrences. And then you decide to use Matt Navarre's method of I will only ever use custom sort. So you switch the fields to custom sort. And then you rearrange them. Well, guess what? You just got spaghetti lines in your you, relationship You laugh graph. at me for using my, my custom sort. But by only ever using custom sort, that never happens to me. I know. You That's know, what I'm saying. It, it resolves that, that issue. It's interesting. It's really not as much of a problem if you don't leave the table occurrence groups open so you can see all the fields. I always used to do that, especially in the products that you know people are going to get into and modify. I used to leave the table occurrence open so you can see all the fields that are used and which field is used and which match. And one day I was looking at um, something that uh, Vince Minano had done. And his graph, every little table occurrence was collapsed. Closed, yes. I've, seen, I've seen graphs like it that. Just looks, what do you guys think? Oh, I love it. It, it really just, it, it just seems so much simpler. And, and it, this, the graph is obviously the same, right? But the impression of complexity when they're all open is so much greater than when they're all closed. So now I, I close them all. Well, I go to just the fields. Once I'm finished with my connections, I go down just to my fields. The fields in use. And if it makes sense, I close it all the way, but I don't close all of them all the way. I, I leave all the ones that, are, that only have a single argument, and the argument is based on the primary key, closed. But all the ones that have some more complex relational structure, I leave open to just the, the fields that are based on the relationship so that I can see at a glance what those are. And then I print out the graph at 100% on a giant plotter eight feet long and put it on my wall. <laughs> he is very proud of his big plotter graphs. <laughs> I've seen those. He's I've planning a, a giant back tattoo. Yeah, that'd be – yeah, no, I'm not. I've got the back for it, though. You do. <laughs> So is there anything anybody else has about uh, conventions? Does anybody we... have a convention for value lists? I'm sure you have to, Matt. Uh, that I, I actually don't because I don't use FileMaker's value lists. I always use tables. Yeah. You can't get the custom sorting when you use those. but Unless it's a Boolean or some basic something. I sometimes use a naming convention on value lists that are used by a function such that if the value list gets renamed, everything breaks. Yeah. I've seen people who use a, val a convention to designate which value lists are solely based on the data in a field and which are custom. Mm. And if it's solely the, the data in the field, they use the field's literal name. So you can kind of tell at a glance. I, I thought that was kind of nice. That's good. About, That's good. I like that. What about scripts? Value, uh, any convention for script names? Not so much. Script names? I use function scripting, so... I try to that's... use English words generally for script names. That's good. <laughs> it's easier than the Hindi. And I use, uh, and I use random case, so I use... Uh, I randomly <laughs> uppercase letters to make it look more complex. That'd actually be pretty funny to do sometime. You know, I was talking to somebody who was uh, 
selling a little template and they were concerned that somebody was going to steal their intellectual property from some custom function and was wondering how they could lock it and bind it. And, and I was like, you know, you should just run it through a little text editor and take out every single space in this sufficiently long block of text that it basically just looked like, you know, the underside of a car. And uh, it, it, it's good. You get this piece of code that you wouldn't want to go back into. And little do they know that uh, most FileMaker databases can basically be dragged onto a hex editor and you can get a lot out of them. <laughs> Indeed. Without having full access. Uh, that's true. Little secret. <laughs> not a, not, that's why physical security of the file is so incredibly important in anything, not just FileMaker. Well, everything. You know, it's, it's funny how people are all surprised, but when you do a search for FileMaker, the number like three or four hit down is lostpassword.com, <laughs> which opens a whole can of worms of, you can't hack FileMaker 9 or 10, can well, you? you can't really. I mean, you can't actually find out what anybody's password is, such as you True. can, you such can't as you can find recurringly out. go back in and log on as that user without anybody knowing about it, which that's a gigantic security hole. What you can do is something that you've been able to do with every version of Unix and anything and tons of other supposedly secure things, which is Any reset software. that password. Right. Correct. All you have to know is where it is. Yeah. And you have to physically have the file. Yes. Yeah. For example, on your Mac, very secure OS X, if you lose the password to your main login account on your computer, you can reboot your Mac on the install DVD and reset the admin password. It just blows it away and you can type in a new one. And then you can use your computer again. Or, you know, a stolen computer that has somebody else's information on it, I guess, is the downside of that. <laughs> yep. Most anything, anything created by man can be cracked by man or woman. <laughs> <laughs> so how have you guys changed use of naming conventions over time? Uh, more complex, less complex? Go oh. from complexity to simplicity for me. Everything ends up going towards the simple. I'm, I remain unchanged. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm fairly unchanged. When, when I was working in a, uh, you know, in a firm and had to write standards for everybody else to follow, I, I was a lot more anal about it. Um, but now, yeah, much more into simplicity. Also, the graphs have gotten simpler. It's funny. As your files get simpler and as your coding gets more, um, so there are fewer redundancies, um, your naming convention can slack off a little bit because the files are just – they just have fewer moving parts. This yeah, that's true. true. Yeah, I've actually – I've de-emphasized a lot of different aspects of development very much with the uh, intention of, of making things simpler. But I've got actually a lot more different – aspects of FileMaker that I'm using. So people who used to be able to understand my databases can't anymore without, you know, a lot more effort because I'm using things that are more obscure. I'm using, you know, multiple parameters for scripts and uh, a lot of different variable names and just, you know, custom functions, let functions, and a lot of other things that I just didn't do 10 years ago. You know, that, that brings up a good point. I think one of the biggest things about uh, naming conventions is consistency. And, you know, you're just talking about script parameter schemes. Man, pick one per file and stick with it. Don't have some scripts that don't use any parameter scheme and some use some that use one parameter scheme and some that you borrowed from a friend and so you're going to use their script parameter scheme. Because when, when somebody else or you are back working in that file, you expect every script to kind of have the same parameter you know, logic or the same framework to it. Oh, you're talking about multiple parameters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. So even a, so like, you know, if I'm using a multiple parameter scheme, even a script that only requires one parameter gets past that as if it were needing multiple parameters. That's really smart because eventually you're going to send another parameter to that script. And if you have a whole bunch of things that call that script and assume that it was a single parameter, you're going to be hurting. Absolutely. 
You guys want to hear something? Bring it on. You're going to be blown away. I come up with this stuff just off of the top of my head. Either that or I read it in a book somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of this while we were talking about going from complex to simplicity. Here it comes. Elegance is complexity hidden within simplicity. Because you cannot have a non-complex FileMaker database. They all end up there. But keeping it simple, that's when you're cool. Yeah. Well, my, one of my quotes that I say is, some, it has to be sufficiently complex in order to be simple. You know, we've all, we've all seen complicated. True. You know, mm-hmm. and that's not that hard. Complicated comes across a transom very frequently. But you know elegant when you see it. Yep. And elegant comes across the transom a lot, a lot more rarely. Well, think about a Google search. I've thought a lot about that for the stuff I've been doing. It's so ridiculously simple to use. You go and you type your thing. But the amount of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to get you the results is amazing. And you, when you start trying to replicate that in FileMaker, you realize how many, you know, how much stuff they've got going on there to make that simple. Yeah. Yep. But, you know, sometimes you wonder, how much are you missing because of what you're not getting? I've thought about that in the sense of, you know what, every time I search Google, I rarely go past the first page. I just modify my search. But there's, I know there's stuff out there buried in, like, you know, the other links that I never get to that probably would solve my problem. So the question I end up having is, wow, you know, how much quicker could I get to the result that I'm looking for if what? Either they changed how they did things or how I cha- if I change how I do things. Yeah, there, so. there's this definite prejudice against the second page of the Google search results, right? You leave the first page and you're off in pyramid schemes and weirdness. And <laughs> uh, I don't know. I go to multiple pages pretty often when I'm looking for something that I really care about. I talked to one person at a, I was at a Halloween party and the guy was, we were talking totally into this conversation. He was saying, you know what, every time that I search, I click on, after I look at the first page, I click on the last of the the little bar of numbers that they give you and he jumps to like the middle and then, you know, each one he does it like two or three times just to see how overall the total relevancy of what he was looking for applies. That's like how much were they relative? Because that gives him an indication that he needs to change what he's searching for, depending on what Google returns in its later results. But now that we're on Google and search results, is this uh, <laughs> does that mean we should wrap up conventions? <laughs> yes, I think we should officially. <laughs> Sounds like a good time to wrap up to me. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for being on, John Sindelar. Thanks for having me, guys. Very fun. We're going to do it more often. We're going to so. wrangle these people up, right, Matt? Yeah, we need to. Wrangle. All right, so uh, if you're uh, listening and you like what you've heard, we want you to leave a review. If not, just sending it to us via email at matt at FileMaker Talk. It's on iTunes. That would be awesome. Another good thing to do would be to join the Facebook group that we've created. There's already about 150 or so members. Uh, and we're, we post information on each episode there and can have some uh, discussion uh, on episodes there as well. Very cool. And if you're interested in any, any of the links and you just listened to this, anything we talked about, and if this is still episode 15, you'll be able to access that on FileMakerTalk.com slash 09 for the year, 015 for episode 15. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you soon.